0: I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of the word freedom. Um, Maybe it's American flag, Statue of Liberty. Maybe what comes to mind is the, you know, the land of the free, home of the brave, our star-spangled banner. Maybe it's the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, liberty and justice for all. Um, I don't know um, what comes to your mind. But there is something that I have associated in my mind with freedom that um, that I had the privilege of experiencing years ago. Um, that I want to share with you about. And that was um, a moment in time that has that, um, burn, burned into my memory when um, a group of us went into a, a rehabilitation center in, in Southern California. And um, we were going to lead this group of, of men. It was an all-male uh, rehabilitation center. I think there were probably 150 men there who had come who had... Um, Struggled with enslaving addictions to alcohol and, and 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 drugs of different sorts, and they were there um, to to rid themselves of this of this enslavement, and um, we were asked to come in and 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 to lead worship to this group. Now, what was distinctive about this particular rehab center was that it was um, unapologetically committed to um, recovery through the gospel. That is. Um, to see the power of Christ um, break the shackles of, of these men who were held by their, their substance abuse. And they were there willingly, and they were there voluntarily. So it's just like this gospel-centered approach to, to seeing people change. And as I said, they were there on their own. They didn't have to be there. They weren't chained to be there. And uh, so anyway, we set up our expensive equipment in their little chapel. Probably sat 60 people. Um, but that evening, uh, 100 of these men, it smashed into this, this, this chapel. And uh, we put up our big speakers and, and we had our microphones and amplifiers. And, you know, us guys we were dressed in these late 80s style suits and the ladies were wearing these late 80s style coats with the pads and big hair. Can you remember those days? Looked like female linebackers up there. And, um, and we proceeded to go ahead and, and lead worship or put on what was a, a, a concert. And, and, and these men who were cra- uh, crammed in there were just, you know, they were listening intently, dressed in really nothing but tennis shoes, jeans, and T-shirts. And, um, and we did our thing, and um, there was a horrible disparity between how we were dressed and how they were dressed. Um, but once we got done, they wanted to sing for us. So they pulled out of, there the, the, the were these pews, the old-style pews, not like this, you know, with, with the little um, hymnal holders, and, and they pulled out these these hymnals that were ratted out. I mean, the edges were frayed, the covers were coming off. They were probably hand-me-downs from a, from a church that would maybe went hymnalless, I don't know. They pulled out these, these old hymnals, and these men started to sing. And um, there's no way to convey to you what I felt in the moment where these men, a hundred, crammed into this chapel that seated sixty. Um, each with full voice, started to sing about Jesus. And uh, every one of us on our team were completely blown away and humbled in our suits and our coats with the pads and our big hair and our big speakers and big amps and stuff. And these men just blew the roof off this place, singing full voice praises to Jesus. And I've reflected on that moment many times since then. And even at that moment, I was thinking, why do these guys sing? I've never been in a church service where people sing like that. And here are a bunch of, you know, recovering drug addicts who are singing at the top of their lungs all together the name of Jesus. And and it struck me that they're singing this. They're expressing this without regard for being embarrassed because men don't like to sing in American culture. I don't know. They just were experiencing... (laughs) Freedom. Freedom that gospel lived out in this communal environment were bringing to their souls. Singing with, you know, realizing the chains were coming off and the, the, the shackles were coming off. I mean, these were men who were singing because they were freed by the power of Jesus. Now, I don't know that many people really believe that the gospel of Jesus has that kind of power. Maybe over some things but not deep-seated addiction. However, I think the New Testament would scream at us to say it has the power to uproot the deepest of addictions and idolatries. And our world, in terms of how the Bible views the world, is that our whole world is actually enslaved. It's not just the people who are given to those um, culturally tabooed things like drinking too much alcohol or smoking too much weed. But you know, we're, we're told that everybody has their particular idolatry and addiction. For some people, it's an addiction to power and the use of power. For other people, it's the addiction of acquisition of money or the power and the sense of self-worth and spending it. For others, it's a sexual addiction. For others, they just love recognition and applause. And, and all of those are forms of idolatry and slavery. And if if, if one thing Jesus came to do, it's to set people free from all of those things and those latent idolatries that, that pull down our hearts so that we might experience freedom to live to the Lord. That's what the gospel does, is it frees. And that's, that's this, this book of Galatians. For freedom, Christ has set you free. So stand firm in it and don't, again, submit yourself to a yoke of of slavery. This gospel is supposed to free us. And there's nothing more that the church of God needs than to continue to experience its freeing power from those things that we still struggle with, though we're Christians. And there's nothing that our city needs more. We look for so many answers to the problem, and it comes down to the simplicity of the fact that God changes people, transforms people, and frees people through this good news. Of Jesus Christ. And we not only have to understand it, what it is and what it is not, but then we have to believe it with our whole heart. And when that happens, it unleashes um, God's power in a church and in a community, which is why we're here um, in Galatians chapter 2. We're at a place in the letter where Paul is actually kind of for the first time, not the first time, but he's going to begin laying out what the gospel is. Up to this point, he's talked to us about the authority of his message by saying that it came directly from Jesus, independently of the apostles, and yet confirmed by all the apostles. All of that to say that what he's about to say is completely, 100%, the gospel. Beginning in verse 15 through 21. Now, I want to tell you that this particular section of text, and I say this by way of, I don't know, warning, preparation, preparation, I liken these verses to a piece of, of granite. <laughs> that is, sometimes writings in the Bible are easy to understand. They're kind of, there's a lot of space between, and the logic flows nice and easily, and they're easy to understand. But there's other times when, when writings are so compressed, and they're so compact, you can easily read them and, and shake your shoulders and say, I'm so confused. What is Paul trying to say here? Because he's making some jumps and I don't understand how this works together and it's easy to give up and then move on. Um, because it is intensely compressed. For that reason, I just, originally I was going to do all, all the verses, uh, 15 through um, eight or 21, but I'm just going to do part of it because it is so compressed. And I just want you to add, work with me mentally because I, I, I believe, again, that this is... Um, deeply important for us to get our heads around of what, what, what the gospel is. So just 15 through 18, and um, let me read it for you, and, and maybe you won't think it's that tough, but here are the verses. Paul speaking, we ourselves, now he's continuing a conversation, I think, we don't know exactly where the conversation ends with, with Peter um, in the former verses, but we, speaking to them ourselves, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, and this is where it kind of makes a jump, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. And then here's another jump. Verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. It's really compressed, and and if you're trying to figure out how this fits together, it's it's difficult. But in fact, what he's going to do here in this this compressed section is um, he's going to lay out in kind of a summary form what he's going to expand on in the rest of the letter. You'll notice the first part of that, I don't think verses 15 and 16 are all that hard. But basically, the point he's trying to make about the gospel is something that may be a reminder to you, but it's something that continually needs to be rediscovered, is that he's articulating that there's just one right way, one right way to the Lord. And he says, basically, we are justified before God by faith in Christ alone. You'll notice that the word justified happens three times in verses 15 through 16. Justified. Now, some will think, oh, man, Dan, that's, a, like, that's an academic word or a theological word. And and it's true, it is a theological word, and maybe some of you who are newer to the faith don't really understand it. But I will say that every one of us, from childhood to being an old person or elderly person, um, knows how to justify ourselves. That is, it's something we learn very early on. So whether we know the word or not, or the definition of it or not, we experience it all the time. That is, we are, we are craftsmen at, at justifying ourselves. So, whether we know the technical definition of the word, it's something we experience all the time. I remember um, high school. All of my friends wanted to go see The Wall with Pink Floyd. You remember? My parents basically told me, well, I should say, well, my parents told me, no, I can, you can't go. Fairly conservative home, which I'm thankful for. They said, no, it's rated R. And I said, but... All of my friends are going. I wanted to go see the wall. My parents said no. What did I do? Everything following the but, all my friends are going, is a form of justifying why I should go. Which, by the way, that r- line of argument rarely works with parents because all, everybody else is doing it. Which, in hindsight, I'm glad I never saw it. My friends went and saw it and said, I think you have to be completely high to see and understand that movie. But I was justifying myself. I see my kids do it. It's like you say, hey, time to stop watching TV. And then they say, but we haven't watched TV all week, so we should be able to spend the whole day watching TV. This is little kids, you know, little one who's just already justifying why he should be able to do something based upon the fact that he has not watched it all week. This is learned from very, very early age how to How to justify. That is, you're pointing. Justifying means we're trying to prove that we're in the right, or we're trying to prove pointed evidence to say, I should be able to see the movie, or I should be able to watch TV all day. You're driving down the highway, 80 miles an hour, but you're going with the flow of traffic. Everybody's going the same speed. And of all the people who are going 80 miles an hour, the cop chooses you to pull over. You pull over thinking, I was going to speed of traffic. He comes to your window and he says, do you know how fast you were going? And you say, um, I'm pretty sure you're going to tell me how fast I was going because you're going to write me a ticket. But what is it that you do in your mind at that point? You begin to justify. It's like, but I was going the speed of traffic. And then that way you're kind of saying, everybody else is, is doing it, and it's a safe thing to keep up with traffic, right? Justifying yourself. And that's we, we point to evidence to... Make ourselves feel or prove ourselves to be right, or, in this case, more just. We're, we're masters at it. And that's one of the ways we, we justify, is, is we point at evidence of goodness. Like, it's, it's safe to go 80 miles an hour if everybody else is going 80 miles an hour, so why would you give me a ticket? It's justification. The other way we do it is that we often shift responsibility and blame to make ourselves appear more, in our own minds, Right. So, you uh, can think of a whole bunch of examples of this. I mean, you go back to the beginning of the Garden of Eden, the very first sin, and what, is that, what does Adam do? And the Lord says, what did you do, Adam? And he's like, <laughs> right? That's what it does. In other words, I'm a, I'm, I, I did sin, but it's kind of, kind of her fault. It's a form of justification by sh- shifting blame. I can see, you know, a man thinking in his head. It comes tax season, and he's like, You know, I think I'm going to fudge the numbers here. And in order for him to do that with a, it's not a clean conscience, but with a sense of comfort, he tells himself, but you know what, I think the government's corrupt anyway. They spend it on all the wrong stuff, so it's not hard for me to fudge because. And we have a lot of that in our culture of of saying, well, I'm more right because I was wronged, either by my parents or by somebody else, by a system. It's a form of justification. We either point at evidence of goodness or we shift blame to make ourselves feel more right, more just. So whether or not we understand the technical definition of justify, we all do it all the time. And it's a way of proving ourselves to be right or righteous, righteous, or more just, think of ourselves in those terms. Now, with kind of that in mind, the fact that this is something that we have a deep urge to do as fallen human beings to to do things to make ourselves feel more right in the world and prove ourselves as right, read that again. It says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, the the fact that he says not Gentile sinners here, is, he's basically saying, listen, we're, we're, we're part of the in crowd. God chose us, we're special people, but the Gentile sinners, I mean, they're, they're outside, they're hosed. They're, 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 there's no justification for them. But we Jews, uh, you know, we're by birth. He goes on in verse 16, yet we, like we Jewish people know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus so that we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. He's saying right here, there is is a wrong way to be justified before the Lord and therefore accepted and there is a right way. A wrong way and a right way. And notice he says that um, by works of the law, no one will be justified. And that, that last part there is all-inclusive. It's universal. It's absolute. No one. No one is going to be able to point at good evidence in their life and say, well, geez, Lord, I mean, look at the good things I did. On the other hand, they're not going to be able to shift the blame and say it was somebody else's fault. This, no one will be justified by works of the law. That is, by keeping the Torah or by performing Uh, morally, good things. Absolute, 100%. There's no one who's going to be justified, not Jew, not Gentile, no one on the basis of how well they lived in life or how much they've been wronged by other people, period. But, Paul goes on to say, there is one way, one way. And by the way, when he says, you know, works of the law, working the law, all of that, is human attempt to justify. It's based upon our own efforts and, and what we do, to try and follow a list of commands or rules in which we think by keeping them somehow we'll gain greater acceptance before the Lord. And he says, absolutely not, one hundred percent we're all um, unjustifiable by ourselves. But he does go on to say the one way that we can be is by faith in Christ Jesus. It's the only way. And that's the part that only one way. There's not multiple ways. There's just one way, and that is that we come to yield ourselves in trust um, in Christ, who paid the debt in full and also transferred to us his perfect performance. Those two things. In other words, this is God's justification coming down to us, not our working our way up to him. And it's all offered to us in Jesus, and all that we can really do... All that we can really do to be fully and completely accepted, loved, and embraced by God forever and ever and ever is to rely or trust or depend upon the simple fact that in Christ, God did it all for us. That's the gospel. That's why it's good news. And it's the simple truth. We will never, not a single person in this room, will ever be able to stand before the Lord and prove themselves to be right. It's not going to happen. Either by pointing at the good you do or by shifting blame to other people. It's just not going to happen. There's one way. And that is our trust, our yielding and trust to the fact that God accomplished it all um, for us in, in Christ Jesus. And yet, that's so hard for humans to accept, and even for Christians to believe. It is so hard for us to accept a gift without that inner desire to want to pay it back. We still feel like it needs to be paid off. Even if we don't want to articulate it that way, we still move that direction. And God's saying that's not how it goes. It's it's simply accepting that I'm that good, I'm that gracious, I'm that loving. That you have to embrace it all as a complete gift. That's it. I can picture a man walking before the Lord, Judgment Day. He's pulling a wagon of self-justification, and he stands there before the Almighty, and he begins to unload his self-justification. Lord, um, my parents divided when I was young. I grew up in a bad neighborhood. I had an uncle that loved to smoke pot in the back of the house. Um, And yet, um, I put myself through college. Here's a list of of the charity organizations that I donate to. And I I, 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 I ministered as a school teacher in the inner city because I wanted to make a difference. And the Lord's going to, basically what Paul says here, it's like, it's not going to fly. It's simply not going to fly. A man trying to justify himself, I think the Lord would say something like, um, "The good you did does not absolve you of the bad you did. Moreover, even the good you did was still polluted by your selfish motivation." And the very fact that you're trying to justify yourself to me means you're in the driver's seat and you're acting as judge, not me. And that's what's offensive to the Lord when we justify ourselves. He's the only one who can justify. And there's only one means of being justified before him, and that is that we accept his son. I can see another man walking before the judgment throne. And, um, and he comes empty. Nothing. And the father says, well, What do you have to say for yourself? And uh, the man says, I I really don't have anything to say for myself, and I have absolutely nothing to offer you. But this one thing I cling to, and that is I cling to the simple fact that in Christ and Christ alone is my salvation and justification. And at that point, I can picture the Father saying, (laughs) smiling, and saying, you get it. You get my gift. You received it completely and utterly in a yielded faith. And that pleases me because it means you honor my gift. Enter my rest. That's, that's, that's how justification doesn't happen and how it does happen. That you and I will never be embraced by the Father because of any performance we do. Ever. Is purely by faith in Christ alone. Got to keep coming back to that over and over again and also to believe it with your heart. Because a lot of us like to believe that we add to it, that we somehow perform to get it, and and the Lord's like, no, you're getting the gospel wrong again. So here he just lays out in verses 15 and 16 the simple one-way answer. We are saved by what God has done through Christ Jesus. All we can do is come to embrace it by faith. That's it. You can't go through the hoops of the sacraments to get it. You can't bend down and pray five times a day to a particular direction, thinking that somehow if you go through these things, you are going to be accepted. Paul says that's not the gospel, that's bad news, not good news, and you'll never justify yourself. But then he goes on after this to um, deal with two perversions of that truth, two that are rather quite opposite. This is the Pressed part. One, one perversion is abusing grace or the gospel to sin. Verse 17, he says, But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, which is a good endeavor to be justified because of Jesus, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, he says. I think what he's getting at here is, Is the idea that um, because he asks a question and we don't exactly know what the problem was, which is why it's compressed and kind of hard to understand. But given what's said in the rest of the book, you can kind of figure out what the problem is. That there are Jewish people saying, wait a second, you're preaching a gospel that, and, and people don't have to keep the law anymore, they don't have to obey the rules anymore. What's going to happen if you remove the rules, if you remove the constraints? Well, people are going to live however they want. They're just going to launch down like a, like a, like a uh, fast track to hell if you remove the constraints, if you remove the law. And people are going to sin. Actually, so your gospel, Paul, this free grace that you're talking about is actually going to promote sin, not transform sinfulness into righteousness. And, and, and I think that's behind this. And Paul's countering, basically saying, Christ isn't a servant of sin, neither is the gospel, a, a promoter of sin, although it is going to happen. There will be people who hear this gospel of grace, that you're not saved by anything you do, simply by trusting that Christ has done it all for you, taken away the bad and given the good. There will be people who embrace that, and then use it as an excuse to live however they wish. That's why later in the book of Galatians he's pretty strong talking about sowing and reaping because I think there were people in these churches in ancient times who loved the idea of gospel of grace. Hey man, I'm saved. I just got to embrace it by faith what Jesus has done and, and I don't add anything to it or subtract from it. So hey man, let's party on, dude. You can see it. Think about it. If, if he's the one who's done it all, it would be very easy to say then, well, I can have Jesus and I can live my life on my terms to do whatever I wish. People will pervert it that way. People still pervert it that way. But Paul's statement here is when he says certainly not, is that that is a perversion, a perverse use of the gospel. A person who has come to experience by faith even a fraction of the cost that Jesus paid because of my personal garbage isn't going to turn around and then say, well, I'll go ahead and live more garbage, which he died for. It's a contradiction. And he says, that's a perversion. Let us sin that grace may abound, he says in Romans. Certainly not. So perversion number one is to go ahead and use this free grace or gospel to live however you wish. That's perversion number one. And the second perversion is actually a reaction to the first. Verse 17. Uh, Did I leave that out? I left out verse 18. What a dork. (laughs) The top part's right. And that is uh, perversion two, returning to uh, a rule-based life. And verse 18 says this. This is where it's really important to have your Bibles, including myself. <laughs> For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. I got You don't have it in front of you, so i just want to read it again. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be transgressor. A transgressor. This is the opposite mistake. If one perversion is to use this gospel good news, of I'm saved by faith in Christ alone, then well, the opposite is, in order for us not to go down the road, the slippery slope of living however we want, we need to reintroduce this law again. To build up, Paul says, what I've already torn down. And I think that's probably personal for him. What is it that the apostle Paul tore down in his life? He tore, tore down a law-based life, a rule-based life, thinking that somehow rules are going to keep you from being bad and they're going to transform you into something good. He said, I scrapped the whole thing. That's not gospel life. You can't walk with a rule-based life and a Christ-based life, um, a law-based life and a grace-based life. It's one or the other. So if I rebuild what I already tore down, and his life was securely and committedly based on Christ and Christ alone, and the fact that that God had already, by grace, established what was necessary for him to be completely accepted, if I tear that down and build back up that former foundation, he goes on to say, then I become a transgressor. I'm once again on the outside. So you have these these kind of two perversions. There's one truth, one true gospel, and that is the good news that Christ has done it all for you, and you must believe it, accept it. But with that one truth are the tendencies to pervert it in two ways. One is to use it so that you can live however you wish. And the other is to say, no, I don't trust the gospel that much to keep me from sin or to transform me, so I need to reintroduce to my life a rule-based life. That's perversion number two. And you know, you have on the one side the libertarian, and the other side the legalist. And those have been the two perversions of the gospel that have existed all the way since then. One truth and two perversions of it. And those perversions still exist to this day. Perhaps more so, maybe even back then. That there are people here, probably, I don't know for sure, who love the idea of comforting yourself with the fact that you're saved in Jesus, but then you're living however you wish. There are people like that all over America. Just... You know, I got Jesus for my salvation, man. But when it comes to my sexual ethics and what I believe about marriage and all the things that are good, good and loving and hopeful and full of faith, well, I'm going to kind of do things on my own. Tell me that's not just a perversion that Paul addresses. That's not how the gospel works. If a person truly understands what Christ has done for them, it is going to change you from the inside out. But then uh, there's probably even a greater majority of people who are tempted to perversion number two. That you really can't trust the fact that it's the gospel that changes you and not rules. I don't think people would really say it that way, but it is really hard to let go of the idea of the moral code. Of thinking that somehow if you don't have a moral code that you're going to slide off the deep end or you're not going to be growing You know, if you talk to a person, this is maybe a good indicator, and you ask, tell me about your Christian life. Tell me. And their conversation revolves around trusting in in the grace of Jesus and, and how much he's done for them, and they're so grateful. Well, that response probably betrays that they actually do trust in the gospel, But if when you ask somebody, or maybe if I ask you, tell me about your Christian life, and most of the conversation revolves around this code of ethics, maybe something you yourself created, well, I don't drink, and I I don't gamble, and I don't... That probably means that whatever you may say your theology is, probably underneath you're still relying upon rules. And that's perversion number two. There's only one way, brothers and sisters. And and when it's believed, when we really believe that we all sit here as free people, fully and completely accepted by our Father, sin is gone. Nothing remains but His full and complete love and forgiveness. That does something to the human heart. You know what it does? It causes a hundred men in a chapel that only seats 60 who are experiencing liberation in their life because Jesus' power is doing it to stand up and say, you know, victory in Jesus or whatever other hymn they sang. It transforms the life this one true way, not these perversions. Using grace to sin or returning to a rule-based life. It's the gospel, brothers and sisters. It's reliance upon Christ and Christ alone, period. That itself is the gospel. And if you're one of those people who have wandered into one of those two perversions, living how you want, holding Jesus in your back pocket or on the other side, sneaking law back in as the basis of life, both of those things need to be repented of for the sake of the one true message. You're saved by faith. In Jesus alone, not by anything you have or will do, period. Lord, help us to believe that truth. Help us to embrace it as, as uh, more true than the ground that we stand on or the chairs that we sit on. And may we experience the liberating power of it in our lives. Uh, may you continue to weed out and uproot those idolatries that many of us still have in our lives, things we depend upon for worth and meaning and identity and and not on the, the crucified but risen Jesus. Um, renew us, Lord, in the simple truth of the gospel, um, that we are yours because of him, not because of anything we do. And we pray this um, for the sake of your people and also for the sake of the name of Jesus, through whom and to whom the glory of the gospel actually testifies. So we thank you. Thank you for being good. Thank you for your word. Now drive it home deep into our hearts. In Christ's name.